Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, PA. And if you've listened to my podcast, which I hope you have, you know I've talked to people in every state, every level of government, um, from U.S. Senate, my Senator Bob Casey, down to, well, me, Borough Council. And every election, every office is important. Um, and a few, a while ago, I got a chance to talk with my member of Congress, uh, Madeline Dean, and unfortunately, she will no longer be my congresswoman in a few months. Um, but fortunately, my new guest likely will because of redistricting. Uh, and uh, she is Mary Gay Scanlon, a congresswoman uh, representing southeastern Pennsylvania. And I can't even say what counties anymore because it's very hard to follow. Um, so we're going to learn about her uh, history and what she's been doing and hopefully encourage you to be actively engaged. So, congresswoman, thank you so much for taking time today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you taking time, and I appreciate that you did run for office. Um, you you have a family that has been politically engaged, right? Um, has politics and elections, has that always been part of your personal um, identity growing up and becoming an adult, or did something kind of spur it on to take it more than just being a voter? Well, I think politics has been part of the family in that we've always been civically engaged. Yeah. Um, so not that folks were running for a lot of offices other than we have an unfortunate family. I think it, it must be some kind of genetic issue that, um, three members of my immediate family have run for and been on school boards. Mm -hmm. So that is local politics at its finest, but part of a, a big family, um, investments, investment in the importance of public schools. So that, that was part of the context. And then my dad, um, coming out of law school, um, went and worked for the Kennedy administration. So um, that was my prior trip to D.C. When I was two to four years old, my dad was a very low-level um, person in the Kennedy administration and then worked on Bobby Kennedy's um, campaigns in New York State for first Senate and then, then president. So kind of having that um, Kennedy ethos and and then just a strong commitment through the entire family to public service, whether through law enforcement or um, schools or libraries or public interest law, which is what I ended up doing. Yeah, your legal career is neat compared to others. Uh, so there are there are a lot of people who are lawyers in in Congress and in state legislatures. Um, and obviously there is a, um, women are not as represented in all levels of government as, as important, which is one of the reasons you ran, but, um, what kind of perspectives have you seen then? Cause there are a lot of lawyers in office. Have you seen a lot of perspectives that, um, you're surprised by an office or things that are missing? Cause I've talked with my state Senator, Amanda Capaletti, who said there's a lot of perspective missing in politics. <laughs> well, certainly, um, the underrepresentation of women, which mm -hmm. as you mentioned, is one of the reasons that I ran. Um, it, just as much in our state legislature as in our Congress. Um, when I got sworn in in November of 2018, I was the only woman representing Pennsylvania at the federal level. We had 18 members of Congress. I was the only female. And we have two senators who obviously were both male. So, um, you know, that's just kind of astonishing for a state the size of, or a commonwealth rather, the size of Pennsylvania. And there'd only been seven women in the 230 some odd years before that, um, the entire history of our country who represented Pennsylvania in, in federal government. So um, it does bring a different perspective. And I saw that when I was on the school board. When I first joined our school board, there were two women and seven men. And over time, we narrowed the gap. It was more 50-50, 4-5, you know, one way or the other. 
and we looked at different issues and we've mm-hmm. seen the same thing with the flood of women that came in flood although it's still only 25 27 percent of right. congress but um you do have different issues congress for the first time has a maternal health caucus um was not really on the radar before despite the fact that the u.s has the worst rate of maternal mortality of any um developed nation by a factor of three or four wow so you know, people's lived experience matters. And it's one of the reasons I'm so very excited about the big development we had yesterday, which is the um, confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, we've never had, we've never had a black woman and that's super important. We've also never had a public defender. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read some decisions that come out of the Supreme Court with, you know, that have pontificated about, oh, well, the police do this and people who've been arrested do that, it's wildly divorced from reality. So to have someone in the room, even if it's not going to change the ideological balance on the court, to have someone in the room who has had the lived experience of uh, representing defendants in our criminal justice system, able to say, whoa, 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 you know, you spent your entire legal career, you know, writing treatises, that's not how it works. I think that's going to be a major upgrade for the court. Yeah, and I think that the American public or a lot of people um, don't appreciate public defenders enough or defense attorneys in general. Like in the terrible confirmation hearings, or at least half of them were terrible, right? Um, Yeah. You know, Senator Cruz was saying how public defenders were siding with criminals, what what does that do to you know, people's sense of justice? Because you're on the Judiciary Committee, and sure. defendants are often, like, it's almost like people just accept that they're guilty of the worst thing possible, and that's not mm-hmm. good for justice. No, it's not, and it's, it's not good for access to justice and the, and the rule of law. I mean, we have an adversarial system. Mm-hmm. Other... Um, other countries have different systems, like the French or whatever. They they have a judge that has more of a fact-finding kind of a role, whereas in ours, we have two combatants. We have the prosecution and we have the defense, and they each have to put on the best, most persuasive case, and then the judge or jury decides. So, um, you know, when you don't have equal funding, when you don't have equal resources, then that skews justice. And, you know, we see all the time that cases are overturned, they have the wrong person, a confession was forced, the evidence turned out to show something else. Um, This does happen, but that's why we need defenders. Um, You know, and and everybody should be, everybody's entitled to representation and we need to make sure it happens. And um, it is one of the interesting things, it's one of the interesting parallels I find between being a lawyer and being a member of Congress. Because when you're a lawyer, you're representing the client and the opposing lawyer is representing the client. And you're there to talk about the issues that you're advocating for for your clients. It's not that you have necessarily hold those beliefs, it's that your clients do. And there's some similarities with representing people in Congress or the state legislature. You're there to represent your constituents. You may not hold all the same beliefs, you may weigh them slightly differently, but you're there to represent your constituents. And the people representing their constituents from other parts of the country, you if we're going to make this government work, you need to separate the personal from the policy so that you can interact with people. And, and maybe I'm going to vehemently disagree with uh, another member of Congress on an issue regarding trade tariffs, but maybe we can find common ground with respect to special education. So, you know, being able to separate some of this is, is what it takes to make Congress and, and other legislatures work. You know, it's interesting you brought up that you might vehemently agree on an issue, but politics 
seems so broken, not because people are in different parties, but the people you disagreed with, they sided with insurrectionists, not all of the people you disagree with. And those are your, they're not just like people in office. Those are your coworkers. Does that kind of thing, when I talked with uh, other members of Congress on this podcast, they talked about working across the aisle. And, you know, as a councilman, I did that too when we, okay. we don't have a across the aisle in our council now. But, um, but that was different than siding with someone who was like, giving a thumbs up to people who were trying to, you know, literally murder my coworkers. Does that make it harder to just in a mental space be okay with doing that? Well, sure. I mean, that's a qualitative difference. You know, it's been a little bit challenging the whole time I've been there because I came in on a wave election. So a lot of the folks who were kind of more moderate or in the middle got swept out by members of my party. So there was a smaller cohort of folks, um, you know, who were willing to reach back across the mm-hmm. aisle. You know, you can reach across the aisle, but if nobody there is willing to extend a hand, then, then you know, there's only so much you can do. But during the first term that I was there, we were able to um, do a number of things. You know, there were areas around things like um, criminal justice reform. Over the last few years, we'd seen the left and the right and the center kind of come together and say, hey, it's not good for the country to be locking up this many people who aren't a danger to themselves or others, you know, once they've gone through suitable rehabilitation or, or punishment. Um, so whether you viewed it as a, a violation of human rights to lock that many people up, or whether you viewed it as a, a, a waste of taxpayer dollars to be incarcerating that many people, um, people have been able to come together and say, we need to address mandatory minimums and criminalization of addiction and things like that. Um, so, so there, there have been areas where we could work together, and there's a lot of legislation that goes through Congress every week that has been worked out, but obviously the hot-button issues have gotten hotter. And I think a lot of it is we've seen, we've seen one party really turn away kind of at the, uh, at the uh, urging of the former president um, to just trying to gum things up and, and divide people rather than pursue solutions. I mean, I'm still waiting for the, uh, the health care plan. Right. Um, so, um, you know, if your goal is to divide people, it's very difficult to work with folks across the aisle. So always looking for opportunities, but they've been few and far between, particularly since January 6th of 2021. And you talk about the, a wave election, and we kind of, it seems like so many people have been getting elected or deciding to run for office because they're kind of anti the other party. So many people, when you ran, um, upset about Donald Trump, I know I was, and um, other people were as well. And now you see a lot of people on the other side running because they say they oppose the current administration. Is there... Are we missing a chance to kind of build and look forward? Is it hard to build like a five or ten year plan of public policy if everyone's just running in opposition of what is now or to preserve what is now? I don't see a lot of uh, energy in the public about thinking long term about the direction of the country sometimes. Well, see, I I kind of disagree with that, maybe. I I mean, I ran for office because I disagreed with the policies that were being adopted by the Trump administration, and I had some serious concerns about um, the impact of the actions of that administration on our government, Mm -hmm. you know, the undermining of the courts and the free press and that kind of thing, and then the open grifting. So, um, 
you know, that's what we do in this country. If you disagree with what's going on in government, you either support another candidate or you run for office. Mm -hmm. You do not march on the Capitol with pitchforks and mace and um, uh, hangman's nooses and everything else. So um, I do think some kind of, you know, return to, no, that's not how it works. And that's where the accountability um, and the um, January 6th commission, I think, is going to be helpful as they have their hearings next month. Um, I also think we've seen that it shouldn't just be personalities. And I do think that's, you know, one of the things we have to figure out with uh, social media and disinformation, getting people to, you know, do a little more critical thinking. If it sounds too outrageous to be true, it probably is from whichever direction it's coming from. And we do need to focus on policy more. Everyone's gotten so hyped up about all the arguments I mean, Democrats pretty much agree on the end results and the policies. Mm -hmm. Most of the disagreements are how quickly we can get there and and how we should get there. So universal health coverage. Yes, that's a fundamental Democratic value. But is the public option or Medicare for all or whatever? What is the best way or the quickest way to get there? That's where the disputes come in. Um, So, you know, enhancing child care. bringing bringing children and seniors out of poverty. I mean, these are broadly agreed upon things. And then the question becomes how we get there. So, you know, I think we have a a large bucket of accomplishments um, that we've had. We had an incredible social experiment last year um, with the child tax credit. And we brought 40% of the kids in America out of poverty. Unfortunately, by not continuing it, we've now seen millions of kids go back into poverty. So we proved it could work. Um, We just need to get the margins to push this stuff across. And the child tax credit is one of those few things you could see an immediate return on. Since you you run every two years, it's kind of hard to pass something that, like the infrastructure bill is great. I can see things in my borough that could be used Mm -hmm. for, and I think anyone in a local office can. Um, how is that, is it hard to kind of demonstrate your accomplishments to people when you can talk about your votes, but they don't, it's hard to see it in their hands? Um, how do you define an accomplishment for, for yourself as a member of Congress? Right. I, I think that's always a challenge because, you know, people have become so used to instant gratification with mm-hmm. Twitter and, and everything else. But, um, as I said, I do think there's a solid record of accomplishment. I mean, just in the first year plus of the Biden administration I and mean, getting the American Rescue Plan across. It got people the, um, you know, third tranche, I think, uh, Biden bucks, formerly known as Trump bucks, you know, the, the stimulus payments and um, continuing the small business support, getting the support for the municipalities, including law enforcement that hadn't been included before. I mean, there's a lot that came through there that we're seeing every day. We do try to do a lot with our municipalities to help them highlight how they've used that that funding. And then there's, there's other things that we've seen. Um, you know, the, the thing that I take the most pride in probably, um, for the region is that one of the first meetings I had when, um, I came into office was with folks who'd been laid off at the shipyard. Mm -hmm. So by January of 2019, the workforce of a hundred or 1800 people at the shipyard was down to 60 people. 
So I was meeting wow. with folks who'd been laid off, their healthcare was running out, et cetera. So that became a goal was to bring ship contracts back to the shipyard. And we've done that. We've got $1.2 billion worth of maritime training vessels coming through there. They laid the first keel earlier this year. Um, their staffing is back up in the 800 or so range, headed towards 1,200 or more. In the budget that just passed, we got money for more um, ships uh, to start drafting whether the kinds of ships they're making there now could be um, modified to use as hospital ships, and they're starting to get Navy repair contracts in. And, and then we've been connecting all that through the community colleges and all the feeder industries in the region. So there's a ton of jobs, union jobs that are coming in there that um, are enabling people to you know, come out of high school, not have to go to college and incur student debt, but to move right in there and start making $25 an hour or more with benefits and a career path. So that's something that you know we're really excited and we've seen the results of the hard work of you know, getting in there, getting the delegation together, bipartisan delegations mm -hmm. together, um, you know, going and lobbying Elaine Chow and, you know, whoever it took to bring that kind of um, funding and bring that kind of business back to the area. So um, we're seeing that again now with um, some of the community funded projects um, or community directed projects that we were able to put in the budget this year. So we're going to see the last million dollars come in for the Lansdowne Theater, which is supposed to be the economic anchor of that community to get that renovated. And we're going to see a, a mobile health van, a mobile mental health van for Delaware County. That's what they wanted to get in there. So there's, you know, those individual things that you see come in and, and provide immediate benefit in the community are really, um, they're really great because they do give you the, um, I don't know, the ambition to keep going forward and, and try to work on some of the more esoteric issues like making sure that we're adequately protecting our elections. It's not mm -hmm. esoteric, it's very real, but it's a little harder to you can't put your hand um, nail down. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that, like um, the amount of issues that a member of Congress or even a state legislature has today are so much broader than even 10 years ago, much less you're talking about your dad, like working for the Kennedy administration back then, back then it was like four things, probably more, but you know, right now, like just looking at your, you know, schedule for this week, it's hard to wrap your mind and the impacts of those things. Um, sure. is, do you think as a, if you're getting into this, you have to kind of train yourself to become somewhat detached so you can focus on the, the bottom line and, and understand like, yeah, you're going to be helping kids, but you can't be bogged down by the emotion of hurting kids if you don't pass things like, like such as that. Like, do you have to kind of separate yourself sometimes as a human being dealing with all of those very complex and very heavy issues sometimes? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that's some of the training you get as a lawyer is mm. that, you know, there, there's there are things you can do and there are things you can't do and you do the ones you can well and and you live to fight another day, <laughs> yes, yeah. kind of a, a trial lawyer mentality. The other thing is, and I do have 19 higher education um, institutions in, in the district I currently serve, great argument for liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, you're dealing with labor issues, you're dealing with education, you're dealing with voting rights, you're dealing with war in Ukraine. And NATO and international relationships, I mean, it comes from every direction. Obviously, you cannot be an expert in everything. So um, knowing 
you know, who are the trusted experts and, and who to consult with. Um, I have come to appreciate that that is one of the beauties of our constitutional system and having 435 members of Congress, um, each one bringing different things to the table, age, gender, diversity, um, you know, what their prior job was. Yes, we have a lot of lawyers, but we also have nurses and doctors and veterinarians and um, business people and people who've worked in the energy industry and, and all kinds of things. I think we have the owner of Total Wine. You know, so there's an expertise you need. <laughs> yes, it is, I'm sure, these days. Um, you know, you mentioned Ukraine. It's actually the first time I think I met you in person. I'd interact with your office before because you came here in Bridgeport. Um, and uh, the priests there recently said that they've raised over $50,000 for oh people gosh, since then. Great. It's been wonderful, the support, and continue to do that. Um, when you ran for office, you had no way to know you'd be dealing with potential wars in Ukraine with Russia, two impeachments, a pandemic, and all the insanity around it, an insurrection. Some of that stuff to someone who's not in office might seem so overwhelming that they might think, look, it takes someone like Mary Gay Scanlon to be in office. I'm not capable of doing that. What do you say to people who think, who look at the, how much has happened and think it's too much for me? Well, it, <laughs> I mean, I, I have come to understand that I had good training for it, although it wasn't what I was planning to do. I had been working at a national law firm on a lot of the social justice issues that we deal with. So I've been dealing with all kinds of issues affecting low-income uh, clients. I've been dealing with immigration, which was a huge issue. I've been dealing with voting rights. So right there, those are three of the big buckets of yeah. issues. Um, also, it was a national law firm with a corporate angle. I mean, it was representing large corporations. So although that was not the work I did, certainly it was around me, and, and therefore I had contact with um, folks who were doing very different things. So um, again, just kind of bringing all that exposure together is part of it. I do have to say that I suspected impeachment might be on the menu. Um, you know, by the time I ran in, in 2018, mm -hmm. there was certainly mounting evidence that there had been gravely serious misconduct. Um, and the first few months I was there, I was really waiting for the Mueller report to come out, which did, in fact, confirm that there had been obstruction of justice. And the, and the Mueller report never said that there was no collusion. It said that they were not able to prove it because um, the folks around the president had destroyed so much evidence. So, um, you know, that... Being a, a history major and someone who looked at the Constitution, was deeply interested in and had worked in the civic sphere, um, that was some training. But I never intended to run for Congress. It, it was one of those moment finds you kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I have just seen how there are so many roles that people play. Um, and how important it is at the local level. I mean, I think if you're interested in trying to solve problems, that's the the first thing that you do. And you can do that on the school board or the borough council or, you know, even your condo association. Um, that's where I think it, it really starts if you're willing to do the homework and try to figure out the solutions as opposed to just pontificating. You know, speaking of being a local official, I'm on borough council and I've talked to people in, in your district at state level and below. Um, if you're a local official and you want to work with your member of Congress, what are some of the best ways to be an effective local official in terms of build, um, building a relationship with your member of Congress to help your community? Well, hopefully your member of Congress is reaching out to you as well. Well, you have. You've already been to Bridgeport. This is like our third time talking about Bridgeport, so I appreciate it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, my office, we, we're trying to hold regular sessions with our local municipalities and, and school boards, both so we can, you know, talk to them and help explain what we're doing with the American Rescue Plan and how to access federal grants and that kind of thing. But to hear from them what the what the issues are, and I assume that any member of Congress worth their salt is going to be receptive to requests for meetings or briefings from, from their local officials. I, I would just, you know, kind of tee up what are the major concerns, and, and if you have potential solutions, that's great, but often just the getting together is great because then people do start to make the connections that can that can help them sort through some of these some of these issues. So I have a couple other questions. One, you you came in with certain expectations or understanding. You had a background on some issues. Now that you've had briefings, you've met with people of different experiences across the country um, who are in office or just lobbying you, um, are there any issues that now you think are more serious or more important? Maybe you thought they were serious, but now you have you think the American public or those of us here in your district um, maybe should pay more attention to than gets gets the attention for it. Because we always talk about like the top three things, but maybe there's some things that we're missing out on. Well, I mean, one is an issue that I, I had personal experience with, I guess, and that's childcare mm-hmm. and just impact it has on people's ability to work or not work. And, and that just exploded with COVID, both yeah. because we saw so many childcare places close yeah. and, and be unable to get enough staffing to get up and running. And because of the, um, the problem that our childcare in this country is not supported enough and it's, it's so expensive that getting affordable, accessible childcare um, has been a major impediment to getting the whole economy back up and running. We've got a significant number of people who can't work, although they would like to because there's no place for the children. Yeah, my, our um, kids' childcare, it was great. It was not the most expensive place, but it was definitely more than our mortgage for two people in, in right. childcare. And, and when my kids were small, they're all like out and launched now. I mean, I did a number of different things. I was home for a while. I was part-time for a while. I was, you know, different jobs, different, um, different, uh, childcare situations over time. And, and, you know, there was a, oftentimes there was a question of, is it even financially worthwhile for me to work because I have to pay so much for childcare. So, um, you know, that's a, a real struggle for families every day. And I think, it's been completely exposed by the COVID pandemic, and we need to um, we need to address that. So that I think is is a key one that's top of mind. Um, a second one would be what's going on in Ukraine and the importance of standing up for democracy and and against autocracy and dictatorships. I mean, that is not just something that's happening in Ukraine; it's around the world, and there are implications for China, and there's implications here at home. So um, I think drawing those connections are important. And then the other one is one that's, you know, something I've worked in in my entire, my entire career, which is access to justice. It's something we don't think about. As you said, you know, people kind of automatically think, well, if they're arrested, they're guilty. But sometimes folks aren't guilty. And mm-hmm. if they don't have representation, we don't um, know that. My focus has been on civil legal aid. Um, and we and we grossly underfund civil, civil legal aid in this country. We spend more on on Halloween costumes for our pets than we do on legal aid for low income families in this in this country. Wow! So yeah, kind of crazy. Um, but that means if you have an eviction moratorium, as we did to make sure that people weren't getting out in the streets in the middle of a pandemic, um, 
if you are living hand to mouth and you don't have access to a lawyer, you may not know that and you could get thrown out anyways. If you don't know how to get eviction relief, if you're eligible for social security disability, but you don't know how to apply for it and you get wrongly denied and then you still don't have the resources, you know, it's kind of a, a um, snowball effect. So civil legal aid helps make sure that people um, are able to enforce or take advantage of those rights and benefits that they're entitled to, whether it's, you know, child custody or eviction or public benefits. Um, it makes things work for the people who are most vulnerable. So that's something that I had up the bipartisan um, legal aid caucus and uh, really want to help people understand how important that is to functioning in society. If people don't think they're going to get a fair shake in court, then that has a lot of implications for how they feel about government and everything else. Yeah, I, I don't hear enough people talking about it, and I've definitely seen it, and I've talked with like our county prothonotary, Noah Marlier, about things like that. Mm-hmm. And local office can even make a difference on things. Yeah. So right now, things seem really heavy in a lot of ways for people, whether it is like fearful of the next, the, the people who in office and, you know, insurrectionists, the pandemic, uh, war, etc. From all you know and all of you experience, how can people who are listening to this or pay attention, what can you say that might give us some hope for the future? Or is it, is there a reason for us to feel hopeful about the direction of things? Um, yeah, and I think we all struggle with this. It's been a really kind of a dark time with a pandemic and hunkering down and, and some real unrest um, in our government. Um, but we confirmed Katanji Brown Jackson on Friday mm-hmm. as the first African-American woman to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, I think that is a reason for hope. I made a point of going over to watch the Senate vote um, and I got chills and Mm -hmm. and the number of um, women who were there to kind of bear witness um, and the number of school groups in the gallery to see it, it was really inspirational. I mean, this is a woman of just impeccable character and intellect and she'll be a huge addition to the court. And we were able to do that. We were able to pass an infrastructure bill that has eluded this country for decades. Um, We were able to pass enough COVID relief that the U.S. economy has recovered faster than any other economy in the world. Um, Yes, we've got supply chain issues that have spiked inflation, but so does the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we're still better off than we would have been. And we had reached a real low with respect to the international relationships. But President Biden was able to pull those relationships back together from the first day he walked into office and knit together a coalition that is um, helping Ukraine beat the crap out of Putin right now. So um, there is, um, I think there is hope. It is not easy and the battles are not over yet. I mean, we've seen the normalization of really grotesque public behavior and divisiveness and hate speech and Mm -hmm. hate acts. Um, And it's going to take some time to put that back in Pandora's box. But um, can it be? It has to be. Okay. That's why you're in office. That's why I'm in office. That's why, you know, moms teach their kids how to do the right thing. And we just need to make that the normal behavior again. Yeah. So uh, the podcast is called You Should Run. I started it right 
I started it because you were not you specifically. That'd be kind of weird, but because like people, Democrats had won a lot of seats in 2018, but a lot of districts had gone unopposed or with very little opposition. You know, just like someone raising twenty dollars, getting a name on the ballot. Um, with all you've seen, what kind? What? Why should people run for office? Not just in 2022, because it's kind of late now, even. But like local, state, etc. Why would you uh, tell people listening this to run for office in the future? I think if you care about issues, you should run for office. If you care about issues and you care about solutions, you step up. I mean, my family's always talking about, you know, sometimes it's just about showing up. We have a lot of runners in the family. And and sometimes some member of the family will come home from a race with a medal because they were the only person in that age group or something. But they showed up. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, starting back when I was doing home and school work, you know, people would come in with a great idea for a bake sale, but if they weren't willing to actually show up and staff the table, that idea wasn't, you know, wasn't worth anything. I think if you have ideas and you're willing to put in the work, you can make an impact, whether it's based on an issue or based on a region or a community. And certainly the, the um, local offices are A, where you have the biggest impact, on people's day-to-day -day lives. It often feels like all I could do in Congress is try to push money at things. But hey, we'll take that money. Uh, Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, it's, it's very important. But, um, but there's a lot more direct impact at the local level. Um, and it's a stepping stone. If you find you like it, then, then you, know, you can expand the reach. But I think caring about an issue enough to look at it and try to figure out solutions, um, you can be part of the solution. That very much was, um, you know, I was like, like many people, I was really disturbed by what we saw after the 2016 election and particularly after the inauguration in 2017. Um, and I started seeing the policies coming out of the new administration really hurting the people I represented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first we tried to defend the laws or enforce the laws, but then the laws started to change. So the solution then is to be part of the process and make sure you can you can stop it. And at the local level, some of these elections, it's one or two votes. Yeah. So um, it's definitely doable. And I would encourage people to do it. I'm happy to talk with them about, you know, lessons learned. Yeah. Our, our mayor won by like six or seven votes in the last year's yeah. election. So um, everything matters. And so I, I am glad that you decided to step up and run. And well, I will be sad to lose my Congresswoman, uh, Madeline Dean. Um, I'm excited that uh, you will be our congresswoman in the future and we'll continue this relationship. Uh, and if anyone's listening, I hope that you will consider running for office too. Uh, thank you, Congresswoman, and best of luck in whatever you're going to accomplish in the next weeks and months to come. Well, I appreciate that. And and just, you know, words of assurance for folks in Montgomery County. Um, Madeline Dean and I have worked together since we both ran for office um, for Congress in 2018. We served together on the Judiciary Committee. We served together on the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. Um, you know, we're, we're working together. Um, if I'm so fortunate to be elected to serve again, to make this a very smooth transition. So... Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, you guys do work together, but like, do you ever want to stop talking about like all of the very heavy, important things and just be like, "Look, Madeline, let's just talk about the trailer for Doctor Strange Two coming out." Like that, you have to do that sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, there there may be some gap fests. Okay, you're allowed, and I'm glad you're a human being, and I appreciate you running for office. And I hope that you, everyone listening to this, will take it seriously as well and leave no seat uncontested. No, no voice unheard. Thank you so much. Thank you.